reading this afternoon is from the second chapter of Genesis, reading from verses 2 to 17 and very easily found on page 4 of the Church Bibles. Please put your hand up for a steward if you need a Bible. I can't see anything with these on at the moment, so I'll look out. (laughs) A couple over here. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, verses 2 to 17. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah and there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gishon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Thanks, Rachel. And uh, we're going to be looking through that passage, so uh, do keep it open in front of you if you can. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis and what we've learnt of you so far. We pray that as we look at this passage, we would... Uh, discover more truths of your character and how we can know you better through the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd speak to us by your spirit and word, we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, we're continuing on our uh, series in Genesis, and this chapter, just like the uh, first chapter and the other passages we've looked at, uh, sets up a model or a picture, if you like, of uh, not just how things were then, but uh, how we expect God to be now and how we can know and live for him uh, today as well. And we're going to see that in today's passage. Uh, We're going to get straight on into it, and uh, we're going to look at some characteristics of who God is through this passage. So number one, God is powerful and personal. 
if you think back to uh, chapter 1 that we've been reading through uh, over the previous few weeks, it's hard not to feel as you, and, and sense as you read those uh, verses that God is a God of power. Uh, so Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty powerful. Uh, or verse 3 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Uh, So we saw, if you cast your mind back, that God is outside of time. He's unquestioned. He's unrestrained. He's powerful enough just to speak light into existence. Uh, Perhaps look at the stars at night and we'll see his work. Or the mountains. Don't look at them at night, you won't see them. But look at them in the day and we'll see his power. The raging seas, the delicate formation of uh, and structures of flowers, the detail in the world around us. God is powerful. Uh, He created all. He is the source of all things that exist. In fact, the Bible claims in the New Testament that such is the incredible power and nature of creation itself that when a person looks at creation rightly, they can have no other conclusion other than that there must be a powerful creator God. Uh, So this is Romans 1 verse 20. It's on the screen. Uh, Paul writes this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, what are they? His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God is powerful. And a word that uh, the... Uh, that Moses uses in chapter 1 of Genesis uh, is a Hebrew word, Elohim. Uh, Elohim is like a generic title for God, and it fits really well with his majesty and his power, uh, a God who speaks an entire universe into existence. He is God. He is powerful. But what we're going to see today is that uh, as Moses gets into chapter 2, the one true God of the Bible is not just powerful and and sort of beyond our comprehension as if we we could never know this God. He's not just Elohim, God. But in this passage, if you look through, uh, scan your eyes across all the verses from verses 4 to 17, uh, he is the Lord God. Let's have a look at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So if you like, chapter 1 is the big picture. It's it's huge, isn't it? And then this part of chapter 2 zooms right on in to a garden scene. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Or more literally, this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. So we're now to imagine a historical detail all the way through Genesis. We'll see this, uh, this phrase, the account of, or the generations of. And this is the first generation of the soil. We're about to see uh, Adam and Eve created. And the God of chapter 1, uh, who was referred to as Elohim, God, is now referred to as Lord God. Uh, Whenever you see the word Lord written in your Bibles in capital letters, that means that the Hebrew word has been translated into English. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. So now the name Yahweh comes into the narrative. Now Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word for I am 
so later on in Exodus, when Moses is going to meet God in the burning bush, uh, God is going to tell him, go back to your people who are enslaved in Egypt and lead them out. Tell them to follow you. And Moses says, well, they're not going to believe me. Who, who are you? What, who do I tell them you are? And this is what God says to Moses, uh, Exodus 3 verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is, what you, this is uh, what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, capital letters, I don't know if it is on the screen. I can't see it. It's not. Oh, sorry. I'll make sure it is next time. Uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God you know, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So, so Yahweh still carries this great sense of power, the great I am, but he's also the personal, relatable God. This is the name by which he is to be known. You, you can call him by this name. He's still powerful, Elohim, but he is also the personal Yahweh who your ancestors know who reveals himself in relationship and love with mankind so as we read through this passage all the way through we're going to see this powerful and personal God we'll read Lord God Yahweh Elohim personal and powerful he's not remote or unreachable as many of us in our world fear he is. He's actually come right down here with us to a garden to create mankind. He's personal and he's intimate. God has come down to our level. Powerful, yes, but personal. So it's no surprise as we read this beginning of Genesis... It's no surprise when Jesus turns up and says, I am, is it? The powerful God has become personal. He's come down to our level, quite literally. The very name of Jesus makes this point. Uh, this is Matthew 1, verse 21. It's on the screen. It says this, <clears throat> She, that's Mary, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now the name Jesus is from the Latin form of the Greek form, don't get, you don't have to remember this bit, for Yeshua, which literally means Yahweh, I am, saves. God is powerful, he is personal, and he will save in the Lord Jesus. So today we won't find God in the garden, the Garden of Eden, but we will find God in Jesus, the, the friend of sinners, the God who became personal, became man, came down to us. We see it at the beginning of creation. And we see it fulfilled in Jesus. So God is powerful and he is personal. Uh, secondly, uh, God is life-giving and loving. 
And now this point isn't really separate to God being personal, but it's worth bringing out the details of how it's described here. So have a look at verse 7, where we see the creation of man from the beginning. So verse 7 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It is God who gives life. Mankind does not share the same sort of life as any plant or animal. We thought about that the other week, but it's confirmed here. Uh, We are not just alive, as creation around us is, but we have the breath of life from God within us. Uh, We're to imagine God, the great potter of the clay, and he forms, as a craftsman forms his craft, a body from the dust of the earth creates a, a man. He's involved. He's invested. He's interested in his work here. It's unlike the descriptions we've had so far. And then he breathes life into his nostrils. Uh, this isn't some kind of panicking CPR. Quick! He's not alive! This is much more like an intimate kiss. You see, God's face comes down to man's face and breathes into his nostrils. He breathes life into him. And the word for breath here is not used anywhere else in the Bible for animals or any other living thing. It's only ever used for God and for mankind. Only God and mankind share this kind of living breath. It's often where we get the word soul from. Now in a society and a culture that, uh, where it's very easy to undervalue human life or to elevate animal life or to forget our own worth or to look in the wrong places for our own worth, returning to this creation narrative reminds us just who we are and how valuable we are. You see, our worth is not in what we're able to do It's not in getting things right or getting things wrong. It's not in being able to achieve things or failing at things. Our worth is simply in knowing it is God to whom we belong and have life. The Yahweh Elohim gives us our identity because he gives us his breath. He loves each of us enough to give us his breath of life so that we are different from the rest of creation. He's intimately created our bodies. And search as the world might, we'll find no other value, no other identity, not even life outside of this Lord God. And so again we see here this model is setting us up to know the Lord Jesus. Uh, So in 1 Corinthians verse uh, 15, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45, uh, Paul writes this. So so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. We've just read about that. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. Or 1 Peter 3 verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He swaps places with us on the cross. Why? To bring you to God. It's the only way. He, is put, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 
God lovingly brought life to humanity through physical creation. And even though, as we'll see in chapter 3, in a week or two's time, we'll see that humanity sins against God, such as, just as we do today, such is his great love for his created beings, mankind, that he will bring new life in the person of Jesus Christ. He will bring a new life-giving breath, his spirit. In who? Yahweh saves. Jesus. It is God who gives us physical life, and it is God in Christ who gives us spiritual life, because he loves us. And that is our identity. We are undeservably loved by God. Uh, Adam deserved nothing. He was just made. And yet God breathes life into him. We are dead in our sin, unable to be in relationship with God, and yet Jesus, by his Spirit, breathes new life into us. So, God is powerful, yet personal. He is life-giving and loving. And thirdly, he is gracious and generous. Have a look at uh, verse 5 of our passage. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Now we'll see in a minute that God is going to commission mankind to work the land, and cause it to grow produce. And so we might expect, because God's found that the land is, needs, needs someone there, there's no one here, he says, no one to work the land, we might expect the next verses to be he created man and set him to work. But God is far more gracious and generous than that. Uh, verse 6, even before we get to the creation of man, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So firstly, God ensures that there is life-giving water in the ground. Then verse 7, as we've looked at, he creates man. Now is this the starting point? Man's got this uh, fertile land, it's ready, now he's got to get his spade out and get to work. No, God has already been generously and graciously at work for his loved people. Have a look at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord had made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Uh, In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. I think we're more to imagine it's surrounded by healthy, strong rivers. The name of the first is is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, and uh, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. It's aromatic resin, and onyx onyx are there too. The the name of the second river is Gihon. It winds around the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, if you read those verses a few times, you start to get the idea. Trees, plants, pleasing sights, food, good food, beauty, rivers giving security and boundaries and plenty of water for all the growth throughout the land. There's even gold, the best gold that we know about. There's gems, there's minerals. 
Uh, We keep saying that humanity is going to fall in their relationship with God in the next chapter as sin enters the world. But Yahweh, Elohim, the personal and powerful, life-giving and loving, is gracious and generous towards his created people. Uh, We may even... Uh, We may live in a fallen world, but it is incredible to see how it provides for us. In God's common grace to all of humanity, there is plenty to sustain life on earth. If only humans would share it. And of course, because we live in a fallen world, God doesn't stop in his generosity and grace within creation. He gives it to us fully, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Like Adam, uh, we've not done anything special to deserve life or all this generosity from God. Uh, And yet through Christ we receive forgiveness of sins, a new life and relationship with God, identity, purpose, now and into all eternity. We receive Jesus himself as our friend and our Lord. So if we're followers of Christ, if we've repented and believed in him, we're not to forget how good we have it as a saved people of our Lord God. The all-powerful creator has come down to us in person to be accessible in our friend, the Lord Jesus. He has given us life out of his love by his spirit. We are free from death. And we can live life with him now. He is gracious to save when we deserve nothing. And he is generous in all things. There is no better life. There's in fact no life at all outside of Jesus. Now to be clear, that doesn't mean in this life we're going to prosper and and become rich and we'll always be healthy and we'll probably avoid death itself. No, we have something far greater than all of that. We have a personal relationship with an all-powerful God because he is good and gracious. This is the identity that the world is searching for. And we have it in Jesus. He is generous and gracious. So finally, if that is uh, what God is like, he's powerful and he's personal, he's life-giving and he's loving, he's gracious and he's generous, how how do we respond? What do we do with our lives moving forward? Uh, Well, we learn a bit here from uh, this passage. Fourthly then, God is commanding and caring. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about what the new creation, uh, eternity with Jesus, will be like. Uh, sometimes I think we think it will be, we'll just sort of be floating around on clouds and, you know, playing a harp. I was once rude about harp players and then I discovered Aaron's dad plays the harp, so that was, uh, that was a bit embarrassing. So I won't be rude, but it would get a bit boring, wouldn't it? That's what we think, going on and on forever, just sitting around playing a harp. Sorry, I didn't mean to... Uh, or perhaps we think while we're here on earth uh, all we're doing is just sort of treading water we're just waiting for jesus to return or to die and nothing here really matters you know we just go to work or to school so that we can get a job so that we can pay the bills so that we can you know but it's basically pointless we're just waiting for jesus 
But actually, that was not the first intention for mankind. It's not the eternal intention for mankind. This is what God designed humans to be like. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, that good and gracious and provided place, to work it and to take care of it. You see, part of God's generosity is not to leave us with nothing to do, floating around playing hearts. We have a purpose. We're created to work. Uh, now, the word work is uh, translated differently by, by some, but it always has its, the same root. Uh, this is how one commentator puts it. He, he, he translates the word to dress it and keep it, uh, but he, he's looking at the same thing. So he, he writes this. There's no magic in Eden. Gardens cannot look after themselves. If you've got your own garden, you know that. They're not self-perpetuating. Man is placed there to dress it and keep it. And the word we have translated, we have translated dress is abad. And it's the normal Hebrew verb meaning to serve. Man was not put here to be served, but to serve, he writes. Now in a culture where putting our own rights first, uh, and that is the most important thing, it's helpful to be reminded that as created beings of the Lord God, we're created to actually serve, to, to work. And who are we serving? Well, there's no one else around at the moment. It's just Adam, so it must be God. He's created to serve the Lord God, to work for him. You say, work is not a punishment from God. Although after the fall, as we'll see in chapter 3, it does become a difficult toil. It, it will be hard. But it's, it's not a punishment. It is a gift for us to be able to serve the Lord God, to manage his created world. And our work these days uh, may range uh, far more widely than in Adam's day. You, you might still be a farmer, uh, but you, you might be looking after the, your family and, uh, and, your, and your household. Uh, you might be at school. You might be an accountant. That's about the most boring job I could think of. That, uh, I was kind to the accountants last week, so I have to, be, I have to sort of um, get my own back this week. But work is a good thing. Uh, indeed, in the new creation, we will work. It is how we are created to be. Uh, what sort of jobs we'll have, I, I can't really help you with. Will we still have accountants? I don't know. But will we enjoy our work? Absolutely. There'll be no more toil. And our work will be a full and glorious service each and every day to our Lord God. It's worth remembering it, isn't it, that uh, we are created to work in a way that serves and glorifies God. We're serving him. When we go back to the office tomorrow or uh, work at home or off to school, you know, all these things may be tainted by the fall, by sin, but it is still a gift from God. And it's an opportunity to serve him in the situation he's put us. We can do it to honour him. We can do it diligently and morally and lovingly. It's not a waste of time just waiting for Jesus to come back. It's our opportunity now to glorify God through serving him where we work. So God commands us to work or to serve 
uh, from the first man, Adam, onwards. And then verse 16 continues. He's not finished with his commands. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Notice first, mankind is commanded to be free, to eat from any tree you like. Enjoy what is before you. God is far from a cruel Lord. He gives a huge freedom to mankind. There's plenty of trees to eat from. There's just one. One, the tree of knowledge of good and evil that you shouldn't eat from. Why is this restriction in a world full of freedom? Is it just some kind of test from God to trip mankind up because he knows they're not going to be able to uh, obey him? Not at all. That's not the context, although that is what it will turn out to be when we see Adam takes a bite in the next chapter. Rather, if you want to live and not die, says God, trust me. Trust what I have prepared for you. I am the Lord God. Know what is good. I know what is good for you. And you don't. So just avoid that one tree as a reminder to you that I know what is best. Uh, we'll think a bit more about the two trees in, uh, in chapter 3. But the trees themselves are more symbolic rather than if you eat the fruit you literally get knowledge and if you eat the tree of life you'll literally get life. Uh, the point is simple. Trust the personal, powerful, life-giving, loving, gracious, generous, caring and commanding God and you will live You'll have access to life for all eternity. Decide you want to take life into your own hands. Decide that you know what's best to just eat from that one tree. Well, you'll surely die. How could it be any other way? It's extraordinary, isn't it, that Adam would choose his own ways over this Lord God we have seen in this passage. It's extraordinary that we choose our own ways over and above this Lord God that we have seen in this passage. Why would we? Given who we've seen God to be. But thankfully, Jesus will be the one man. He will be the final Adam. He will perfectly obey every command from the Lord God. And he will restore his people who trust in him to the full care of the Lord God. All we need to do is come to him because he is gracious. It's a blessing to hear of this Yahweh Elohim in this passage. It convicts us of our sin, because we see how good he is and how crazy it is that we turn our backs on him. But it reminds us to cling to the last Adam, the one who did it all right, to the Yahweh saves, to Jesus who puts us right back into perfect, good, glorious relationship with our Heavenly Father. Right back into a spiritual reality of what the Garden of Eden represented before the fall. So we don't need to kid ourselves that we know better, or that uh, God's ways are sometimes a bit too far-fetched. We just pick the best ones that we can find. Now let's fall back into his intimate, life-giving spirit and breath. Let us enjoy the generous and gracious Jesus who he has given. Let us obey him 
because he loves us and knows what is right. We can trust his commands and promises. And let's come to him when we fail. He gives us a personal relationship with the almighty, powerful God. There's there's no better life. There's no life at all outside of the Lord Jesus, who we're put here to know and serve. Let me pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a powerful God who created all things, and yet you made yourself personally knowable to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us life-giving breath by your Spirit through Christ, simply because you love us through no work of our own. We thank you that you are gracious and generous, giving us far more than we deserve or could ever imagine. And thank you that you give us command so that we can know that we need Jesus and that he will make all things right and so that we know that you are worthy of all trust and honour. Help us to serve you in whatever we're doing this week. For your glory we pray. Amen.